I read this passage earlier this week, and it really struck me because I think much of modern Christian theology has been built around the need to provide the believer with security concerning his salvation. And when the free grace model or the OSAS, once saved, always saved model encounters the truth, oftentimes the question that is posed is what happens to security in this new configuration, this biblical paradigm? And it's almost as if the Bible has given some kind of litmus test that any doctrine that doesn't make the believer feel complacent must automatically be suspect. But there's no scripture that I've found that's given such a test. In fact, scripture seems to do quite the opposite. If any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall, right? If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Not that I have already attained or been perfected, but I press on. It's been quoted several times from Hebrews. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but press on to the saving of the soul. Jesus, strive to enter by the narrow gate, for many will seek to enter and will not be able. And so on and on and on and on. The Bible seems to warn endlessly about a complacent attitude towards saving faith and salvation itself. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they'll be astonished. But the Bible never seems to give us this sort of test. But it's so ubiquitous in Christianity that it is almost taken on biblical proportions in the minds of believers. So that if you start destabilizing that complacency, you're seen as threatening people's faith by which they're saved. Amen? I'm sure we've all heard this in various forms. And yet there are these key scriptures that emerge that tell us that there are markers that we can and should look at to find some confidence concerning our future. And they're important markers because if we don't have them in our lives, then we better make some changes in order to receive them in our lives. They're sure proofs that if we miss or we don't have, we need to be fearful. We need to not be fearful for the sake of fear, but fearful for the sake of making a change. And some of these scriptures that come to mind would be, you know, if our hearts condemn us, he is greater than our hearts. And the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are sons of God. And this is how we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So there's this sense in John's words there in 1 John 2, I think it's verse 5, that this is how we know. There's this sense that he wants to know (laughs) and he wants the people to know that they have come to know him. But keeping his commandments is not a one-off thing. He does not say this is how we know that we can never not know him if we ever once kept a commandment. He said, this is how we know that we have come to know him if we are keeping his commandments. 
And then he speaks in the present. The one who says, I know him, present tense, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, present tense, and the truth is not in him. But there is a reassurance there, isn't there? That we can know. We can know that if we're really walking in God-empowered obedience, that itself is an evidence that we have a saving relationship with the Lord. Obviously, I'm using come to know him, borrowed from John 17, 3. This is eternal life, to know him, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So that's a reassurance, wouldn't you say? You say, well, Lord, how do I know that I'm keeping your commandments? Well, there again, there's the question. There's the rub. There's another scripture that we often quote, but I felt it with renewed power this past week, and I want to read it to you in its entirety. It's in 1 John 3. No one who is born of God goes on practicing sin. I'm giving an alternate translation there, but that is, I believe, true to the text. Because God's seed abides in him. Now, what is God's seed? Hmm? Some are saying his spirit and others are saying his word. Well, they're not mutually exclusive. Amen? His spirit nature is planted in a seed called a word. But that word has life abiding in it. It's got an outer shell of verbal sounds, but an inner germ of eternal life, of the very presence and spirit of God abiding in it. Amen? So his word is his seed, but that is also his spirit because Jesus said the words I speak are spirit and they are life. And the life is in the seed. Amen? Begetting things according to their kind. No one who is born of God goes on practicing sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. There are different ways to render this. I don't want to get caught in that right now, though I'd love to get caught in it with you later. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. So he's like, forget all the mystery. Forget all the questions. If you see someone trapped in habitual sin and you see someone who is free from the same, there is an obvious conclusion Scripture would have you draw. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Those who would distort this Scripture and say he speaks of the imputed righteousness of God cannot get around the fact that he said anyone, there is an object there, a definite article, anyone who does not practice righteousness. So this is not about imputed righteousness of God. This is about you walking in the Spirit is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Amen. So he ties this love of brethren to righteousness right here in verse 11. Then he says, For this is the message which we have heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain. It's amazing that he, he, he paints Cain as someone who loved his brother. But they were, they were brethren, they were kin, so I guess there was some kind of affection there, maybe before and after he killed him. 
not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, we don't know anything about Cain that was overtly evil except that hamarchia, he came short of the full sacrifice that God required. Amen? I don't know any passage in Genesis that prior to slaying Abel indicates Cain was doing some wretched thing. It's that when he came to God, he was unwilling to give everything. Brothers have pointed out, and I can't right this moment recall, that growing vegetables actually takes more time than raising a lamb. But God wasn't interested in more time. He wasn't interested in the fruit of his hands. He wanted Cain to have an acknowledgement that his sin required a penalty of blood, that his sin entailed death to the innocents. So God was interested in something that was of emotional pain, of heart value, not something that was of human works per se. We are supposed to love not like Cain who was of the evil one and slew his brother. He says that he was of the evil one because the same mechanism of the evil one is what motivated Cain. Cain is the first one to operate in what later is called the energizing of Satan. And what is the energizing of Satan? It's selfish indignation. It's where the envy of the devil says, I would be like the Most High. And if I can't, then I'm going to become the arch enemy of the one who condemns my behavior. So you see, there's actually an envy at work in the devil's fall and an envy at work in Cain's fall. They're both related to this resentment that I'm not what I should be. This guy shows me that and I want to do away with him or undermine him in the case of the devil. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. So now he's making the world the Cain congregation, right? He says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death, which is the Cain congregation, into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So we've got these two camps, the world, which is emblematic of Cain, and we've got Christ, which is this self-giving love. And he says, don't love like Cain loved. Cain hated his brother because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And he then connects the world as a general category to Cain. And this category called the world, he then calls death. We have passed out of death into life. Death is what Cain moved in, right? This is the category of the world, if we love the brethren. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This word hates that he uses here is detests. It's this word of disdain, like contempt. It's not just the word of, you know, I want to kill you, that kind of, it's the word of 
distasteful. Blech. I do not like that. Everyone who hates his brother, he says, is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This could be taken right out of the Beatitudes, where Jesus shows us the attitudes behind the horrible behaviors and says, if you've got the attitude, you might as well have the behavior in the sight of God. We know love by this, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. So he says, you know you've passed out of death into life if you agapeo the brethren. And that creates a question, what kind of love, what kind of agapeo? And he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so ought we to lay down our lives for our brethren. So here's this scripture that those wanting security in their salvation should look closely at. Because he says, we know. We know that something has occurred. We have passed out of death and into life if we have the love that lays down its life for its brother. Now, when Jesus ministered in the Gospels, he said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, and what is the context for losing your life? Laying down your life for your friend, he says in John 15. We'll find it. So here's this category of life called the kingdom of God. And we enter it by willingly losing our lives. And here's this category of death, and we remain in it by tenaciously holding on to our lives. Self-preservation results in abiding in death. Self-sacrifice results in abiding in life. If that's not a paradox, I don't know what is. Can we just process that for a second? Do you see how I'm connecting whoever seeks to save his life will lose it? That's the Cain spirit. And whoever seeks to lose his life will find it and keep it, he also says in another gospel, for eternal life. What we hold on to by our own strength, by our own conniving, by our own efforts, by our own rights keeps us abiding in death and what we lose in love what we lay down in love transfers us into life this is how we know that we have passed out of death and to life God wants you to see something about love today that if you could see this word would begin to constitute the whole of salvation in fact, it would sum up all the law and the prophets. It would be the great commandment, the greatest commandment. It would be the new commandment and the old commandment and the commandment that showed that you knew God in a saving way. Notice what he doesn't say. This is what he doesn't say. This is how I know that I have passed out of death into life if I am loved by the brethren. How many of us want to be loved by the brethren? That is not a proof of anything. He says, you know you have gotten out of that self-serving, self-preserving category of Cain if you have an impulse, have an action, have a will to lay down your lives for the betterance of your brethren. 
Now I want to juxtapose this passage, this seminal, salvific passage to a Revelations passage. Listen to this. The righteous and the saved overcame Satan. How? Because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and now he's going to use the, the same John is going to use the exact same phrase and say, and because they did not agapeo their lives unto death. Do you hear it? Amen. You have got to lose that infatuation with self. My dad told me once, your flesh is merely the wax for the candle, the light, the fire of God's purpose to consume throughout your life. It has a purpose, but not as the center, not as the object, but as the substance being burned up to give light. We overcome the devil if we view ourselves not as the object. If we don't love ourselves in the way we're supposed to love our brethren. This kind of love is juxtaposed in the Bible. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that there are three loves used in the Bible. We all know this already. And what are those three loves? First one, bad one, what is it? Eros. What's the second one? Phileo. And what's the third one? Agape, agapeo. And Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that they give this condensed definition of eros. This is their first opening definition. I'm just going to read the one sentence because I think it sums it all up. It says, this is the passionate love that desires the other for itself. Do we have a definition? It is not limited to sexual love, although it includes that, but their overarching description is eros is a love that desires the other for oneself. And then phileo is a different kind of love. This signifies solicitous love in the sense of a love that cares, that wants to know about the other. Of friends, it embraces all humanity and entails obligation. So we've already moved from a love that just wants others for oneself. Now we're moving to a love that starts to care a little bit about how others are feeling, thinking, suffering, needing, etc., etc. And it's best translated by our English word affection. Eros is lust, phileo is affection, and then there's agape. Mount says agapeo, agape and agapeo are obviously the same thing, just different tenses. Agapeo means to love, to value, to esteem, to feel or manifest generous concern, to be faithful, to delight in, to set store upon, generosity, concern, devotedness. Now I think this word really translates the Hebrew word chesed. It's part of the meaning of the Hebrew word chesed, although that's also mercy, etc. So listen to the difference. Eros wants the other for itself. This puts value, esteem, and generous concern, delight, and faithfulness towards others. 
The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that agape love, he says it denotes preference for someone else. It is active, not self-seeking love, quote unquote. He goes on, he says, agape of God means total commitment and total trust. They believe that the word agape entails total commitment and total trust. In particular, it involves a renunciation of mammon and vainglory. It also calls for resistance to persecution, which is a fiery test of the loyalty of love. Love of neighbor accompanies love of God. This is no abstract love of humanity. This action derives from a response of the heart and consists of doing in all sobriety what the occasion requires. This is all still a quote. It is thus totally sacrificial, quote unquote. This is how you know. This is how you know, and this is the definition of that word love. It is totally sacrificial. The demand of Jesus is self-evident because he creates a new situation. He proclaims God's mercy as a new event that changes everything. The forgiveness of sins that he brings releases a new and overflowing love, agape, which fills and directs all life and action. God's new relationship to us puts us in a new relationship to him and to one another. This is a relationship of mercy and reconciliation. The Son brings remission, calls for an unconditional decision for God, and thus creates a new people who will tread the way of self-sacrificing love that he himself took. This is all their definition of that one word, and I'm abbreviating a new humanity is the goal of God's agape action. And he uses acts of human love to attain this end. God is the source of these acts. He awakens the faith which comes into action in love, Galatians 5.6. He pours forth the spirit who frees us for loving activity, Galatians 5.22. For Paul, this new agape is supremely brotherly and sisterly love in a fellowship that is based on Christ's mercy and Christ's death. Love builds up. It builds the work of the future. In it, the power of the new age breaks into the present form of the world. This is why it is always central when linked with faith and hope. Love is the greatest of the three because it alone stretches into the future aeon. We're just giving a definition for this thing that we want to know that we have. In the first century after Paul, a contemporary of Paul, wrote on love, and this is just a summation. This is Clement of Rome, not Alexandria. In a world perishing through eros and vainly trying to transcend itself by sublimations of eros, the church being itself totally dependent on the merciful agape of God practices a love that does not desire but gives. Lord, help us to understand your love. Help us to open our hearts to your Holy Spirit that pours that love into us, God. Three loves. One desires the other for itself. 
the second starts to solicit and care about the others and knows that there's an obligation on it. The third loses awareness of self and is totally sacrificial in concern for the other. And that is the one he uses when he says, this is how we know. You can know you have come to repentance when a certain kind of love has come into your heart. You can know you have been converted when your consuming concern shifts from your own self-preservation and you start to strengthen your brothers. Didn't Jesus tie this love to conversion when he told Peter, when you are converted? And for the man who thought he was converted but was not yet converted, what was the question he asked him three times? Do you agape me? And Peter had finally adjusted his self-estimation down to reality. And instead of saying, sure I do, now he could honestly answer and say, I phileo you. And when the Lord asks him, do you agape me? He responds, I phileo you. And as if to press the point and make sure Peter is acknowledging the, the distinction, he says, so you phileo me? And he says, Lord, you know all things. Because the third time he said, do you phileo me? After asking twice, did you agape me? Amen. He didn't agape. The love of God had not been shed abroad in his heart. Why? Why did he deny Jesus? Why did he forsake him? Because self-preservation was locking him in the camp of death. What was it that made him say, I don't know the man? Was he not seeking to save his life? And was he not losing this life over here that God had been promising? Oh, I don't know him. I don't know him. Curse, curse, swear, swear. Then something changes. Amen. And now he's being transferred into the kingdom of the son of his love. A certain kind of love is the best proof of conversion, of repentance. We all know the scripture in Revelations 2 where he says, I have this one thing against you. What was the one thing? You're doing all this stuff right, but what? You have lost your first love, your first agape. And what was the remedy? Go out on a date, light some candles. Hmm? What was the remedy? Grab a Hallmark card and send it quick. No, he says the remedy to a lost love is repentance. You have lost your first love, therefore I say, repent and do again the deeds which you did at the first. Agape is the best proof and fruit of repentance. Because you cannot agape, which means to lay your life down for others, unless you've already removed self from the throne. You're not living for self. You're living for God. Paul tells us in Galatians that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself, pressing itself out through love. Now, we are not permitted to have faith in people. We may use that loosely, but faith is something that can only be posited in God, right? But our faith in God, in His will, in His plan, finds expression through love. Amen? If we believe in God... 
but we don't love our brethren, we're liars and we don't practice the truth, do we? We still walk in darkness. And this faith is what Peter wavered in when he didn't walk in love. Amen? He lost his faith in himself, but he got back to a purer faith in Christ. And from that, he was able to learn to agape. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not agape his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So our saving relationship of faith to God is realized in love service to our brothers and sisters. And we cannot claim that we've got this if it doesn't show up like this. Now, I'm going to build this a little bit more. I'm going to read a scripture, and then I'm going to read it again, and as many times as I need to, for the lights to go on. But I want to read something to you. So this is John 5. John 5 is an incredible passage, just like all the rest in the Bible. Um, but it's an amazing passage full of promises and paradoxes and revelations. So in verse 19, he says, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also in like manner. And he goes on down, and in verse 24, he makes this statement. We're talking about how we know we've passed out of death and into life, right? So one proof is the love of God that lays down its life for its brother. Okay, here's another one. Listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Now, there's more in this than meets the eye. Listen to it carefully. He says, whoever hears my word, now what does the word of God produce, according to Romans 10? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So Jesus has this same construct. He's got him speaking and belief resulting. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into judgment. Indeed, he has crossed over from death to life. Now what he's saying here is if you hear Jesus talking but find yourself listening to the voice of the Father and believing Him. Something has changed in you. You're able to discern what's really going on in Jesus. The word that He was speaking was not His words. He's already said that in verse 19. Listen to what He says in John 17, 16. Jesus answered and said to them, My teaching is not mine but his who sent me if anyone is willing to do his will he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself what he was saying is 
if you want to pass out of death and into life, you got to learn to hear the Spirit. you got to learn to see humanity, but hear the Spirit. You getting it? Let's try this one more time. Whoever hears my words and believes him, not believes something about him, but believes him as if he were the one speaking those words, has crossed out of death and into life. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In John 14.10, listen to what he says. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Brother Lonnie said that he wanted to get to the place where he could feel the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the word. I want to suggest to you, if you can't get there, you're still in death. Because you have passed out of death. Because to be carnally minded is what? Death. You have passed out of death when you can see past the vessel, when you can hear past the faults, and you can hear the voice of the Father speaking through human flesh. Do you see it? Listen. The words I say, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Does his works. Now what is he calling the Father's works? The words I say. Everybody, please, stick with me. What is he calling the Father's works? Words. Words. Coming from his mouth were the Father's works. Listen to what he says in John 6. This is the work of God to believe on him whom he has sent. How about John 14 again? Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. But, he says, whoever hears my words and believes him has crossed out of death into life. Because death is to be what? Carnally minded. It's to hear his words and believe him, maybe, or believe things about the Father, but it's not to believe the Father. Recognizing the Father in Jesus. Is that where it ended? No, it's not. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 40, and Luke 10, 16, the one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. We all have quoted the passage in Ephesians 4 where he says, you have not so learned Christ for truth is in Jesus. Just up above it, he says, you have been taught by Jesus. Brother Howard has talked to us about how that construct never appears anywhere else in the scripture. It's a very unusual concept. Here in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, now, what was the work of God? Okay, listen. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for this reason I also 
constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. Are you seeing this? God is speaking. You cannot pass out of this Cain dominion of death and enter into the victory that overcomes the world that is faith that comes by hearing the word unless you get out of your carnal mind and learn to hear the father's voice in the son's words. But he says, it's not just from the son. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever listens to me listens to the one who sends me. And he says, here you received our word, not as the word of men, but as it was in truth, the very word of God. You see, right now or in any setting where God's anointed word is coming forth, that word may fall and bounce off your life and be ineffectual. But you are still in debt to it, according to Ecclesiastes. You are still accountable to it because it is our responsibility to let this mind be in us, which was in Christ Jesus. It is our responsibility to pray past the fears, to pray past the constructs, to bring every thought into captivity to the mind of Christ. And when we stand in a place where we can see human beings and hear natural English words, but detect the voice of God, our Father who is in heaven, that indicates we have passed out of this dead realm and into life. This John 5 that I'm starting from is where he says, most assuredly I say to you, the day is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The whole conversation is based on whether the spiritually dead are going to be able to hear something besides human words. And if so, receive that spirit that gives life, that word that is spirit that gives life. In 1 John 4, he says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. This goes back to what I shared several weeks ago. Satan is incarnating himself in a people and Christ is incarnating himself in a people. To say that the Spirit of God is in you is to say that God is incarnated in a people. So he says you have overcome them because greater is he that is in you. You cannot overcome by principle. You cannot overcome by catechism. You cannot overcome by penance or any self-imposed religion. You overcome when the great overcomer comes inside of you and you begin to move toward that enemy with an empowerment of the indwelling Christ. You have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are from the world. Here's that Cain category, amen? They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the 
viewpoint of the world, and the world listens. Oh, that makes sense. I get that. No, I, I, I would have said it the same way, says the cane nodders. We are from God. Now listen, think of what we've just been talking about. We are from God. He who knows God. Is that a salvation term right there? Is that a salvation term? This is eternal life, to know the only true God. He who knows God hears us. <laughs> he who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And the spirit of error is what he's already called the Antichrist. 1 John 3. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and that we love one another. There sums up everything we're talking about. Believe in the authority of his son Jesus Christ and that we love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, the spirit whom he has given us. Well, let me read a scripture that's familiar to you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, there's a lot of love in the world. Love is the subject of more songs than any other subject in the world. Love is the subject of more books than any other subject in the world. More art of every form, probably more letters. And does that mean that the world knows by all those books and songs and letters that everyone is Jesus' disciple? No, we got to recognize there's more than one kind of love here. we got to recognize the kind of love that desires the other for oneself and the kind of love that is totally sacrificial. That's the kind of love he's referring to. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what profit is that? So he acknowledged that there was a certain kind of love in the world, right? That's not the kind of love he's talking about. The world will recognize Christ's self-giving love as the unfalsifiable proof that we truly belong to him. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I do nothing of my own initiative and that the Father is with me. So what the world is looking for is not more sap. Not more goo, not more hallmark. The world is looking for sacrifice. The world is looking for people who will lay down their lives for each other. And that is unfalsifiable proof. That's how we know that we are his disciples. Amen? In 1 John 2.10 it says, Whoever loves his brother remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. He goes on and elaborates this a little bit more, but why does he say that whoever loves his brother abides in the light? What about loving your brother turns the light on? Because you don't have any meaning as an island. You have a meaning as an interconnected archipelago of many islands coming together to form a continent of faithfulness. He says, he who does not love his brother walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. Everything you go through only finds transcendent meaning when it's sacralized in a community that benefits brothers. So if you don't love your brother, if your life's purpose isn't your brother's, then you're walking in darkness and you don't know where you're going. 
Do you have cancer? You don't know why you have that. Do you have weakness? You don't know why you have that. Do you have blessings and prosperity? You don't know why you have that. But when you are pulled out of your isolation and placed into a community, suddenly you know where you're going. You're like, oh, I get it now. Paul profoundly told the Corinthians, he said, all that I am going through is for your sake. That's someone who knows where he's going. He's not walking in darkness. Love has turned the lights on because it has shown you the object, the purpose, the focus for your life. You think about people who have gone through things. Think of Sister Darla. People who've fought the last battle, who've finished the race. Brother Robert Ans. Think about these people. Okay, they lost their lives, but did not flowers of righteousness spring up everywhere where their sacrifice was spilt? Did people not come to God? Did young people not mature? Were ministries not born? Because they went through something that would have been meaningless if endured alone, but it was sacralized in the context of the temple. They loved their brother and they knew where they were going. They were going to the cross. Now listen to this. We've got to do one more careful reading. Listen. I have given them the glory that you gave me. You know, everybody likes to talk about the glory I had with the Father before the foundation of the world. Okay, well, listen to what he says about that special glory. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Why? Why does Jesus say that when the church walks in the glory he had from the Father and walks in the love and the oneness with each other and with the Father that he had, why is that going to prove to the world that God sent Jesus? Because the miraculous phenomenon of the incarnation was that the invisible, numinous presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle of a man. And he is saying, if we walk in that same glory, we will have that same oneness. We will walk in the same unity Jesus had. His spirit will live among a people. I will live among them and walk among them, and they will be my people, and I shall be their God, says the Lord. And so the world will not look at us and say, I think God sent Jesus because you're very persuasive. They will look at a body and the same spirit that animated the individual life of the man from Galilee will animate a corporate people and they will experience incarnation. They will encounter God in Christ. They will encounter Christ in you, the hope of what? Glory. The glory I had, I gave to them. Well, what is this glory? 
It's when spirit unites with flesh. Jesus suspended all of his glorified rites until post-crucifixion, right? He lived in the kenosis of emptying himself, right? But listen to what it says in John 1. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. When flesh and spirit unite, we behold glory. So he says, the glory I've had, Father, I'm given to them so that they had the same oneness in us that we've had with each other. Do you understand? The same spirit that lived inside of Jesus, he wants to live inside of a people. And when that word, that spirit, becomes flesh in us, the world will behold his glory as they did in the individual man, Jesus. The glory was oneness between spirit and flesh. When the word becomes flesh, people behold his glory. Fellowship between spirit and flesh represents the shared glory, a glory he extended to us. 1 Corinthians 1.27, I'm wrapping it up, but it's getting more exciting, amen? God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him. Not we proclaim words about him, but we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. He said, I want to be in them and I want them to be in us. Well, he just said, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Now he says, we're in him. Them in us, us in them, etc. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. An enlightened heart means you passed out of death into life. It's one of those proofs. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Ephesians 1.18, what is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Ephesians 3.16. May God grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be empowered, dunamis energized, through his spirit in the inner man. Okay, this is the last scripture. I'm going to read from the Amplified, because it amplifies. Imagine that. Beloved, do not be amazed and bewildered at the fiery ordeal which is taking place to test your quality as though something strange, unusual, and alien to you and your position was befalling you. But insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, rejoice so that when his glory, full of radiance and splendor, is revealed, you may also rejoice with triumphant exultation. If you are censored and suffer abuse because you bear the name of Christ, blessed are you happy, fortunate, to be envied, 
with life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of your outward condition, because the spirit of glory, the spirit of God, is resting upon you. On their part, he is blaspheme, but on your part, he is glorified. So let me wrap this all up. Everything is to accept the name and authority and anointing of Jesus, his only son, and to love one another. But what we're accepting is not what our minds can process about what the English words are that are being spoken. We are wanting to hear his word, but believe the voice of God that we're detecting through him. We're wanting to hear the word through his body, but detect the spirit of the Father speaking through us. We're wanting to quit pursuing our life, embellishing our life, seeking to save our life, and we're wanting to lay down our lives in an agape service that prefers the other, that entails permanent commitment, abiding fidelity, and total self-sacrifice. If you wake up and you say, God, am I saved? God, am I where I'm supposed to be? You just ask yourself, what is my attitude? What is my concern? If I weep, who do I weep for? Do I weep for what I've lost? Or do I weep for what I've deprived God of? Do I weep for what I've caused others? If I long, what do I long for? Do I long for his kingdom? Do I long for the strength and peace and happiness of my brothers and sisters? Or do I long for the things that the Gentiles desire? What is the object of my concern? Do I look at the church and say, aha, I can get them for myself. If I get them, I'll be a better version of me. That's eros. That's selfish love. That's desire. That's lust. Or do I look at them and say, this is why I'm in the world, to lay down my life, to help and serve and better these people. Well, then I don't walk in darkness. I walk in light. And there's no cause for stumbling in me. Lord, help us. Help us to come out of ourselves. Help us to repent and find agape. Amen. Help us to bring every thought into captivity and come out of the death of the carnal mind and into the life of your word, of your spirit. Amen. I said that was the last scripture I was going to read, and it wasn't a lie. It was a failed memory because I had printed out something from the Amplified, and I want to read it. The word God speaks is alive and full of power, making it active, operative, energizing, and effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life, soul, and the immortal spirit, and of joints and marrow and the deepest parts of our nature exposing and sifting and analyzing and judging the very thoughts and purposes of our hearts. And not a creature exists that is concealed from his sight, 
but all things are open, exposed, naked, and defenseless to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Amen. God, let your word come to us. Even if it's a convicting word, it's a life-giving word. Amen. Let it change us. Let it bring us to repentance. Let it break the fetters of our slavery to self. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.